This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia ora. welcome to Bookends with Warren Rout and Ruth Todd. And in our second last program for the year, I'm talking with Fiona Sussman. She has just written her fourth novel and had awards for every one of them. And she also won the Naomash a few years ago and decided she was quite good at writing crime. And this is another crime one. So put it on your list. Um, and I've got a fabulous book for people who love gardens and... Um, love going to gardens and love their own gardens. It's uh, called New Zealand Gardens to Visit. It's by photographer Juliet Nicholas and writer Rosemary Barraclough. Former family doctor Fiona Sussman hung up her stethoscope in 2003 to pursue another long-held dream to write and be published internationally. She's the author of four novels and numerous short stories, and I was very excited. Fiona, welcome to the programme, when the last time we spoke won the Nio Marsh Award for Best Crime Novel in 2017, and then was shortlisted for the New Zealand Heritage Prize in 2016. And uh, you've gone on, addressed to Greta, launched Bateman's Books Fiction List, and went on to win the New Zealand Book Lovers Award for Best Adult Fiction in 2021. And so it goes on with your short stories. You've had amazing success with very few books, haven't you? Thank you, Ruth. Um, Kia ora. Lovely to, to be chatting to you. Um, yeah, I do pinch myself. It's always lovely. You know, you spend such um, a long time alone in your study sort of working with not a lot of feedback. And so these are definitely some wonderful flowers along the way. Indeed. Now, a psychological thriller um, when did you really think about suspense and thrillers? Um, Ruth, it was interesting because normally um, with my previous three novels, I've never really written to a particular genre. So the story leads the way. There's a story that will out and often the genre is placed really on the um, book after the fact by publishers and marketers and um but my second novel um the last time we spoke um won the now marsh award in 2017 for best crime novel and i was quite um sort of gobsmacked because i hadn't in my own head conceived of it as a crime novel you know yes there was a crime um and i'd used that though more to explore um social issues in new zealand but as a result of that um, award, I got um, to go over to a crime writing festival in Stirling called Bloody Scotland. It was the most incredible experience. Um, and there I really got to discover the incredible breadth of writing that falls under the banner of crime fiction. So, you know, on the one hand, you're cosy murder mysteries and your police procedurals sort of going through to your psychological thrillers and on the other end um, the more literary crime and the, the, the community there was embraced me so warmly that I came back to New Zealand and with the express purpose of writing a crime novel so, so that's where it started. And that's the year that I wasn't very well and didn't 
have anything to do with the crime novels, uh, the No Marsh, which we began right. about 11 years ago. And uh, yes. I never ever heard anything about them, as far as I recall now. And right. then I came back to you with Addressed to Greta. And so I have never read yes. that book. So this was oh. a double surprise to me that you had <laughs> r- written it. <laughs> and I'm going to go back and find it now. Oh, um, excellent. So I had no idea that who had won that year. And uh, right. I was just out of the, you know, out of the oh, loop. That sometimes happens. Mm, certainly, mm. one's unwell. Um, yeah, one just withdraws <laughs> from. Is not aware of everything else that's going on. But it's very well planned. This book, um, not obviously, of course, because but it's such a. Um, a clever book because things start off so well in the book in the story, just not for very long. But you, you, it builds and builds and builds, and I had no idea what the ending would be like. And I read a lot of crime, so um, <laughs> I was so pleased that I didn't. And uh, it was, um, you know, quite a surprise to me. And when I went back for a second read, which I always do, um, I could see perhaps a couple of hints that I could have taken more notice of, but not really. <laughs> they, they passed too quickly. So I, the characters' interaction was fascinating, the two, um, the two parents who were great friends, um, Stan and Carmen, yeah. and uh, they had two young boys, and then um, Dr. Austin, Austin and Tibby yeah. Lamb. So yeah. Austin Lamb and Tibby Lang, and uh, they had no children, and they seemed to have the perfect marriage, and everything went well for them, and they had plenty of money, and but they didn't have any children. And that yeah. wasn't an issue in, you know, at the beginning of the book at all. Yes, and yes. it doesn't really become an issue till right till the end. And you have no idea of that feeling. Um, they seem yeah. such delightful people and they're great friends, and especially Tibi and Carmen. And then some things started to unravel. Um, and then I couldn't put it down. <laughs> Did I found um, out who, who's done this? <laughs> and we can't tell anybody very much about it at all. But um, right. there were so many other characters too. Did you plan the couples uh, to be very different couples and yet close friends? Well, yes. So, I mean, the doctor's wife essentially revolves around these the sort of long-standing, supposedly tight friendship between these couples. It's that's um, you know. Been since school, except for the the fourth um, st- the fourth person, Stan, who marries um, Carmen. He's a little bit of an outsider because he wasn't with the three at school, and so never quite fits into the group. No, but um, the, in many ways, I wanted it to be really just characters that we could meet any day ourselves. You know, we've got mm. a doctor and his wife, and we've got a sculptor and his freelance journalist wife mm. and in some ways I want them just to be your regular ordinary people to give that sense of debit for the grace of God go I so that when um, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say because the book really opens with um, the friendship is shattered by illness when um, Carmen is diagnosed with metastatic brain tumors and the fallout that follows is compounded when some months later a dead body is discovered at the bottom of some cliffs and because the story is told from 
multiple different perspectives. Um, the reader's task really was trying to work out who, if anyone, is telling the truth. And so that sort of is, the, the tension is initially, um, well, the focus is initially on Carmen and her personality changes, but then the book tips sort of halfway through into a murder mystery, and that's when you meet um, Detective Ramesh Bandara and his assistant, trainee detective Hilary Stark, and they are charged with trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Yes, and uh, they were very interesting characters too because they were very different. But um, And Ramesh was the senior in the partnership, but Hilary... It was a very astute, blunt, um, said how she felt and um, was very astute when um, interviewing people. Um, and he let her go at times when he really respected her her way of doing things that was a bit different from his. And I liked That's that right. partnership too. And so you had all oh, these... Thank you. The, and then there was the, there's so many characters. Um, <laughs> and I, I was glad you gave them a chapter each, especially at the beginning, till I could really sort them a little bit. Yes. But then there yes. was Elliot. And Elliot mm. was um, such... Um, he was about... 11 years old? or No, he's 21, no, no, wasn't he? 21, yes. yes that's yes. right, but he still had, um, his brain was at about 11. Yes. Would, would it yes, be? You well, yes, I mean, it's hard. He's, Elliot's neurodiverse, so he kind of, um, he has some incredible strengths and also some challenges in the way he engages with the world. So I don't know really sort of what... Um, age, I would say, no. you know, mental age, I would, but he certainly has, um, you know, challenges and then also these amazing skills. And he is, um, I guess I've always been slightly fascinated by people sort of who are forced to the margins of society, either because yes. of their race or their culture or their neurodiversity. And so Elliot, I have great affection for. You know how you, you are yes, some you characters. Yes. And he, he's a character that will, you know, stay with me for a long time. But he, he so he, and again, it's not a spoiler because it happens at the very beginning of the book, but Elliot is the person who will discover the body at the bottom of the cliffs. And as a result, will initially, just by virtue of that, come under suspicion. Um, but he, yes, he, he um, will, you know, you will follow him as you'll follow a number of the other characters' stories. That's right. And he lives yes, with yes. his mother, and she's very anxious for him, obviously, yes. because because of his, um, you know, she understands how brilliant his mind is because dates and times and numbers, he just remembers everything, um, doesn't he? He's got an amazing memory and uh, he he can put on, tell you the date when um, what she wore at his ninth birthday, things like that. Um, So he builds up too and that's again um, to different people. His mother's very different from him, but she's yes. an amazing mother, and uh, yes. he recognises that too. So, yes. uh, And then there's people like, minor characters like um, Carmen's brother, Richard, who didn't yes. think much of Stan, and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's just so many interactions, oh. and I, I loved that. I just thought you, you couldn't have put one more in, really. Um, oh. It's an interesting thing because I always, you know, there's always this debate, Ruth, about, um, you know, what's more important, character or plot. And obviously I think you need both um, to have an engaging sort of page turner. But for me, I 
most of my books grow out of character. Yes, they have. And I think that if um, if you don't have these really fully rounded, convincing characters, it doesn't matter how clever your plot is, you'll lose your reader along the way because your reader has to care and sort of invest in their journey. And so um, whilst there is obviously this plot that has quite a number of twists and turns, um, the main build is to try and find out who these different people are and to work out what what sort of things happen in people's lives to influence them that might tip them into forbidden territory, like to do things outside of the law. I've always been fascinated in that sort of aspect of that people's psyche and what sort of stresses can make people behave in a certain way. And this comes through so clearly, and these are the books that I love to read, and uh, I'm just... I think it's going to be as uh, successful as your other books, and I hope you're going to keep writing um, more quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Ruth. I actually, um, they, my publishers have asked, and so I can um, sort of report on good authority that the text from Rish Bandara and Hilary Stark have some more mysteries to solve in Aotearoa and I think it's that this book is going to be the first in a, a, a small series of, of um, you know, Oh, delighted, um, delighted to novels. hear that. Thank you for <laughs> telling us that. And uh, look for Fiona Sussman with her latest thriller, The Doctor's Wife, and it's published by Bateman Books. And Fiona, um, thank you for winning the uh, Nio March and just oh. put you on your way. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. I've been talking to local photographer Juliet Nicholas quite a lot recently because just about every year she and one of her various writers comes up with a marvellous book about New Zealand gardens. And the latest one is called New Zealand Gardens to Visit. Couldn't be better timed um, just before Christmas. Somebody in your household or you might just want this book because you could be going on a bit of a trip around. And uh, here is a wonderful guide to where you might want to go and see some of New Zealand's most spectacular gardens. Juliet, you have a, a stunning job, but I know that it's hard work because this time of the year, gardens are at their best often, aren't they? They are, and all over the country, so one's feeling one has to be in several places at the same time, uh, which of course isn't possible currently, so it is very hectic between October and December, particularly for me. So, And you have to um, come in and do book <laughs> <laughs> interviews about your new book at the same time. So these gardens um, are ones that are open to the public. How on earth did you and Rosemary decide which ones to put in the book? Right. Well, that was quite a challenge, as you can imagine, because there are so many other wonderful gardens could have equally well been in the book. But in the end, we wanted to get a good selection within the covers of the book and within each region. So we divided New Zealand up into 10 regions and then we made sure that within each region we had about four or five or six gardens featured. So it's not definitive, 
but it provides a very good range of what's available in that particular area. And of course, we've got such a long, skinny country here that we cross many um, climate zones for plants. So what we get in the far north, obviously, is very subtropical and the temperate zones in Southland provides a completely different sort of flora. So we've spoken to the flora in each zone, really. And you're also looking nowadays to gardens that are um, sustainable in, in a way that don't require huge amounts of water unless they're getting it naturally, like <laughs> Taranaki and places like that. But you've also kept that in mind as well, haven't in, you? Indeed. I think um, as well as being a, a guide to good gardens to visit around the country, it's also a guide to gardening practice in New Zealand in the first quarter of the 21st century. And I've been photographing gardens for 30-odd years now, and I've certainly noticed trends and shifts in gardening habits and practices and water is one of the the big issues and that's for sure and so people are planting um, place climate specific plants. I also like the fact that you know these gardens are uh, on the whole, there's a, the, there are you know public gardens in here, like the Auckland Botanical Garden and the Chinese Garden down in Dunedin, but most of them are owned and loved and worked by some very passionate people. Indeed, and we did want to include public gardens along with the private gardens. Um, most people know that public gardens are obviously the botanic gardens, and most major cities are open for anybody to go. Um, on a daily basis, but a lot of people haven't known that there's a whole raft of very wonderful private gardens around the country that if you just ring up and make an appointment or um, contact them online, you can go and visit. And the gardens that we've selected are open for a period of time, either a season or throughout the year, and most of them you need to make an appointment to go to. Some are open just 365 days of the year, but mostly we've provided the contact details for people to access and make contact with the, the garden owner. And I love the fact that Rosemary, the Bar- Barraclough, the writer, has she's done a, a, a you know a, a sort of postcard <laughs> um, description of the garden and the gardeners and a little bit of the history. Mm. But she's also included these little boxes of. Um, special notes about the garden, what makes it stand out or, you know, extra information for you, you know, Mm. when you're visiting the garden, what to look out for. That's right. And also we wanted the writing to be multi-layered because it really is also for the armchair traveller as well. If they aren't going to get in a car and drive around the country, they can actually derive a lot of information from looking at the pictures and reading the text. So there's obviously a description of the gardens, there's uh, some history of the making and the successes and failures and yeah, when is a good time to visit as well, what's special about this garden compared to another garden. Yes, so you can time your your visits. For instance, the Arboretum up in Tairafati is best in autumn, you say? Yes, indeed. And I also visited in spring and just all those beautiful fresh greens. There's nothing quite like it. And I've been aware of this um, Eastwood Hill Arboretum 
for many years, but I'd never got there until I went to photograph it for this book. So, oh, really? The you book hadn't is actually been before? Pre- no, and I feel ashamed about that, and I just encourage anybody and everybody to go to that arboretum. It is just extraordinary, absolutely, and a wonderful repository of mainly northern European plants, but there's a really good native section as well. But the main impetus for the creation of the arboretum was to protect the trees and flora from the northern hemisphere. So over 15,000 trees. It's Spectacular. Mm. Spectacular. Closer to home, I've 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 marked out some favourites, which I feel bad that I haven't made the effort to go and see. But, you know, one that's always intrigued me is um, Rosa Davison's one up in Blenheim or down from Lower Dashwood. Paddy Puma, is that Correct. how you say it? It is. Because yeah. she's used natives in the most extraordinary way to to create an almost classical garden. Absolutely. Mm. Um, But it's all native. And what's even more impressive is that Rosa has propagated a lot of the nio predominantly as the plant that she used to create this the structure and the layout. And um, she didn't go out and buy 2,000 nio plants. She spent time propagating and dealing with the winds of Cloudy Bay and Marlborough at certain times meant that many of them <laughs> left the ground and went flying. But yes, <laughs> I love that. Finally, <laughs> they got established. And it is just the most wonderful framework um, for a garden. So it's extraordinary, this garden. So again, mm. um, please Anybody listen. living on the coast in dry conditions, this garden would be such a... Such, um, a wonderful one to go and be inspired by. Also close to home is, again, a coastal garden. You can see where I'm heading, can't you? (laughs) Somebody who lives in a coastal dry garden is the one at Fisherman's Bay out on Banks Peninsula. Yes, and again, an extraordinary amount of passion and, and work and creativity. And every time I visit Jill and Richard Simpson's garden at Fisherman's Bay on the eastern bays of um, Banks Peninsula, developments have taken place since my previous visit. And um, it's beautiful. And the, the latest work that Jill has developed is um, creating a perennial style garden, mixing natives and perennials together and and just using colour. She's very creative and artistic and it's stunning. Yes, the swathes of colour here are are so seductive, aren't they? And she must do a lot of propagating of plants as well. Yes, she certainly certainly does. Um, She's an extraordinarily talented gardener and what I love about both these women and many of the people featured in the book is that they're doing all the work themselves. Um, Occasionally professionals get called in but um, they're very active They must be in gardens all day, (laughs) all day Yes And there are, you know, worse places to be than being in your garden Um, and that's only an hour and 40 minutes from Christchurch, so it's a, it's a day trip for any locals who it wanted is. to do that. Um, and I love the fact that quite a number of these gardens, they they will they sell plants as well. They do, and um, you can also stay in some of these gardens, which is another bonus, and we've mentioned that in the gardens that offer accommodation because 
it is just so wonderful at the beginning of the day and the end of the day to have the garden to yourself essentially and wake up to the sounds and sights and smells of of the garden. So, mm. oh God, yes, mm. wonderful thing to be able to do. Um, what was the garden that surprised you the most? You said you hadn't been to the Arboretum before. Were there others that you? I mean, thirty years of photographing mm. gardens. Mm. Um, one that I had been to previously for for another book is called Omayo, which is Liz Morrow's garden just on the coast from Matakana, north of Auckland. And I had seen photographs of that garden over the years. Liz had it as a holiday home, then developed it as a place to, to live and garden in permanently. And um, so it had been published 20 years ago and 15 years ago, but I first went there about five years ago and was blown away by what I saw there. I knew that there were old ancient kauri trees and pureri trees dating back 1500, 1,000 years, 1,500 years. But to walk into that property and experience it was on another plane altogether. So um, in a way, it's a testament to the it's what the book is about, to actually inspire people to see some images and follow up and visit there as well because the, the power of those giants and to be able to walk among them, touch them, sit by them, see what they see. Yes. Extraordinary experience. So that was... Yes, it, it does look like a, a, a garden to to um, take you in and, and and give you what the Japanese call a green bath. Is that what it's yes, called now? forest bathing. A forest and, bathing. Yeah. Yes. There's a lovely photograph, I think, towards the beginning of a huge Pahutukawa. Is it a Pahutukawa? Yes, that is, and that's at Butler Point in Northland. Um, You'll hear us going through the pages <laughs> here looking for the big Pahutukawa. Look at that. Again, the spread of it. A thousand, twelve hundred years old. Just mm. extraordinary antiquity. We may not have um, buildings that go back centuries, but we certainly have forests and trees um, and landscapes that, that do. And um, again, overwhelming to be in the presence of such majesty. You've also included, I mean, you had this really difficult choice of <laughs> which gardens to put in. Um, so you have kind of made up for it by having a list at the back of other gardens that people might want to. Indeed, yes. Go to. Yes, and uh, and hopefully that's quite useful for people and also just gets them um, used to Googling an area and finding out more. So um, we felt it was better to concentrate in some depth on fewer gardens rather than spread things too thinly. Um, so... That's how we solved that problem. Well, I think you've done a magnificent job. Um, it's so enticing, and I um, and the fact that you know, if you're going to an area, if you're going up to Gisborne, if you're going down south, if you're going over to um, Taranaki region, there are all these magnificent and sometimes quite idiosyncratic gardens. <laughs> <laughs> to follow up on. And yes. as you say, gardeners who are very happy if you contact them to open their gardens and let you see them. Yes, yes, I think gardeners love sharing. It's everybody's happy place, really, so it's a very nice habitat and venue to meet people in. And gardeners love sharing what they've created, I think. Mm. Perfect. 
So, as I said right at the beginning, if you're a gardener or you know a gardener, this is definitely the book that should be under the Christmas tree. It's called New Zealand Gardens to Visit. It's by Juliet Nicholas and Rosemary Barraclough, and it's published by Godwit. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.